The very beating heart of Christianity is victory. There is an undeniable darkness in the cross, but that darkness is dispelled and overcome in resurrection light. On the third day, according to the scriptures, Jesus rose from the grave and the tomb was empty. And all its terrible and titanic cruelty, death, does not have the last word. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our victor, triumphed over death. He entered into death, non-being, and disarmed it, removing its fangs and claws, domesticating it. He has broken down its iron bars and released the prisoners. He has taken captivity captive, as the scriptures say. The keys to death and Hades are his now. And what he opens, no one, not man, nor demon, nor power, nor principality, can shut. And so the song that he's put in our mouth is not a dirge, lamenting and mourning death's tyranny over creation, but a victor's shout, a conqueror's taunt. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We boast over death, gloating in Christ's triumph over our former master, the strong man who has been bound and plundered by another stronger than he. And that song of resurrection victory ought to reverberate through every corner of our lives. John Stott, in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, has this to say about the early Christians. It is impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it and which stands out in relief against the rather jejune religion that often passes for Christianity today. There was no defeatism about the early Christians. They spoke rather of victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. This was the vocabulary of those first followers of the risen Lord. Now the opposite opposite of defeatism is not optimism, a theme we'll return to later. Rather, what energized the apostles in the early church to turn the world upside down in the name of the gospel was an unshakable conviction that the risen Christ will have the final say. That sin and death, no matter how terrible and dreadful, will lay slain at his feet. And their courage, not merely of exceptional men and women, but of the common and ordinary people, even children, can be explained in no other way, by no other recourse than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So at the risk of redundancy, let me say again, Christ's victory over death and the dark forces that come in its wake, his irrepressible resurrection life, is the beating heart of our faith. In ancient times, John Christosom, a pastor, he compared Christ's triumph over death to a great dragon swallowing down something that it could not digest. 
death, he says, is something like the acidic stomach of a vulture. Uh, There's nothing it cannot uh, get down and keep down. Death swallows human lives on on the regular, without consequence and without indigestion, so to speak. Until, Christosom says, it swallowed up the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and as they who take food which they are unable to retain on account, and on account of it vomit up also what was before lodged in them, so also it happened unto death. That body which he could not digest he received, and therefore he had to cast forth that which he had within him. Yea, he travailed in pain whilst he held him and was strained until he vomited him up. Death swallowed up in Christ what it's supposed to be another routine human body, but it was, in fact, the Son of God incarnate. It took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and crumbled before what it had not seen. Death writhed in pain like a mother in labor, Christosom goes on to say, until it burst forth ripped open from its very midst, not being able to digest the indestructible, imperishable life of Christ. So as a man, Christ died. As the Son of God, he conquered death. In the unity of God in man, in Christ, death at last came into contact with that which is life itself, that which is not Touch that which eternally is and the former passed away. Uncreated light shone into the uncreating darkness and dispelled it. Christ descended into the grave and he overcame it from within, bursting its gates and setting its victims free. So the victory has been definitively won in Christ's resurrection. But... It is not yet consummated. Salvation history remains in the betrothal stage, as the scriptures put it. And it comes to its glorious end, this long-standing divine plan, the marriage finally consummated in our resurrection from the dead. The divine plan, remember, as we considered last week, comes in stages. Christ, the firstfruits, and then those who are his At his coming. And it all hinges God's plan on the once and future advent of Jesus Christ. So he will come again to make an end of death for all time by rescuing our bodies from its grip and raising them into new life. When this mortal will have put on immortality, says the apostle, then. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, victory concerns the whole person. Not merely soul, but also body. Victory for one and for not the other is no victory at all, because man is not only soul, nor is man only body, but body and soul. The inner man has been redeemed, raised up on high, 
seated at the right hand of God, says the apostle. But we are eagerly waiting for our redemption or for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That has yet to come. And so sometimes this sort of dualist, almost semi-gnostic tendency enters into our thinking where the material creation, which we currently inhabit, is envisioned to have no future. That our end is a disembodied one, a spectral existence. That, however, is not the biblical vision. God who created the visible world, who called it very good, is not going to abandon his purposes for it. Instead, as he intended from the very beginning, he will raise it up into a new and transfigured existence. The creator will not allow death to have its way with his creation, allowed to run its course so that everything is destroyed and returns to nothingness. Rather, the inevitable process of death is halted and reversed by the greater than inevitable power of God. Christ does not give his creatures over to death, but he shatters death's power, ending its tyranny, giving instead eternal life and peace. So there remains a future for this material universe, but the question becomes, what kind of future? In what manner shall this world persist? Now, that's the question that the bulk of, of this chapter is devoted to. The Apostle Paul, in fact, addresses two separate but interrelated questions in verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? No, now, those are uh, rather important questions, both to skeptics and unbelievers are skeptics and believers, rather. How are the dead raised is the first question. Upon death, absent of soul, which animates the body, our bodies will be buried in the ground, and then they will slowly decay. And after some time, they will return to the dust from whence they came, no longer bodies in their current form, but indistinguishable from the earth. Then, from that place of complete corruption and decay, the promise is that our bodies, the same one that went into the grave, will rise. So it seems a very reasonable question then, how? How are the dead raised? And having been raised, the next question is, what will our bodies be like? Is the resurrected existence identical to our present existence? The same flesh and blood state? The same animal urges and necessities? Or is something completely different, adapted to a new form of existence altogether what awaits us in the resurrection? Now some questions, of course, are designed to mock, but certainly some, maybe most, are genuine. The resurrection presents us, even those who adhere to it, with many challenging questions. So what would the Apostle Paul have to say to our questions about the resurrection? 
Verse 36, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain. Perhaps of wheat or of something else, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. So he speaks obviously to mockers and skeptics. And they are fools because they doubt the resurrection while present throughout all creation are analogies and images that witness to its reality. Their intellectual imaginations, in other words, are too narrow. He points to the seed and the body that rises from it to stretch their minds, not as a proof, because nothing can ultimately prove our resurrection from the dead, but as an illustration. In some manner, the how of the question is addressed by the analogy of the seed. The resurrection, he seems to say, is something like this. Now, the picture is one of continuity and discontinuity. The head of grain is quite unlike the seed, yet it came from the seed. It's not entirely a new creation, but in some sense, it is the seed persisting in a different form of life. Hence, the continuity and identity remains between the old and the new, what was and what has come to be. So too are resurrected bodies. Consider Christ, who was not given an entirely new body when he rose from the dead, such that his old body remained in the tomb. Rather, his new body was his old body, radically transformed and glorified, but nevertheless, the same body. There is an identity from his past life to his new resurrected life. The seed is the body that rises from it, translated, as it were, into a new mode of existence. Now, in the resurrection, the old model is not abandoned for a new one, like some commercial product incidental to our personhood. Rather, this body, the one that you currently bear, is saved and transformed by eternal might. Now, on those same grounds, there is also room for discontinuity. The resurrected body, like the head of grain that rises from the seed, is genuinely new. One thing rises from another. As N.T. Wright puts it, a seed does not come to life by being dug up, brushed down, and restored to its pristine seediness. No, the resurrection of the seed, so to speak, is something new, sprouted from death more glorious and splendid than before. And so too our resurrected bodies. Christ rose into the newness of life, the same incarnate one, but transfigured now in glory and in might and in imperishability. In the resurrection, when this seedy body will have received ample water and light, it will sprout into something unimaginably new and great. Thus, the image that the Apostle Paul gives us here is one of growth. Now, not to be taken literally, but it shows how one thing can grow into another, how one thing can be transformed into another, yet remain the same 
thing. From a seed to a head of wheat or to some other form, there is an identity and a discontinuity. As the head of the grain was not yet, so the seed is no longer there. So, he points to this, stretching our imaginations, giving us something of an analogy. And then the question arises, well, what is this new resurrected body that our present one will grow into? He continues now, skipping ahead some in verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are also those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So the present body is sown in death as a natural body. It is raised from the dead a heavenly body. As we have borne the image of the natural in Adam, says the Apostle Paul, we shall bear the image of the heavenly in Christ. One, Adam, constitutes the beginning of the human race. The other, Christ, constitutes the redemption and perfection of the human race. In creation, our bodies are constituted in earthly form after the image of Adam. In new creation, our bodies are constituted in spiritual form after the image of Christ. So this current body uh, that we have from Adam is from the earth, the apostle says. It's from the earth, earthly. Reiterating the words of the very creation narrative. You guys remember in Genesis 2, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He formed him from the ground. So the point here is what the natural body, the one we currently bear, is constituted by, the substance that it's formed from, earth, dust, the the things of this terrestrial sphere. And when Adam forfeited eternal life, By disobeying God in the garden, the curse was, you are going to return to the dust from whence you came. Hence, our earthly bodies. Now, the Christological body, the one that we are going to receive in the resurrection, is, the apostle says, from heaven. One is of the earth, one is of heaven, meaning, and this is quite radical, that its composition is something else entirely. Not from dust, suited to a natural existence in this terrestrial world, but from another substance, suited rather to spiritual existence. Hence, the apostle says, it is imperishable, literally not capable of death, fundamentally changed in its relationship to the forces that bring death in this universe. It is glorious, once weak, once buried in dishonor, it rises into a new status, and it is now strong and mighty in the Lord. So here, 
in this transformation from natural to spiritual, the apostle gets to the heart of the the matter. The resurrected body that each one of us in Christ shall bear is essentially a spiritual body. Now that, as it strikes our ears, sounds like a contradiction in terms. Spiritual body, right? Those, according to the modern imagination, don't go hand in hand. In fact, spiritual is, to our conception, inherently immaterial and disembodied. It conjures up images, the spiritual does, of some ethereal place, a ghost-like existence without concrete form and shape. That, however, is not the apostolic understanding. Whatever our spiritual existence is going to be, it is also an embodied, localized existence. You are going to receive a spiritual body. In truth, God is the only properly disembodied reality there is present throughout the universe and transcending it, in whom we live and move and have our being. Everything else, even spirits, have some kind of body because they're localized. They're not omnipresent as God is. So our conception of the spiritual as without form and inherently non-physical comes, I think, from a philosopher like René Descartes or later Enlightenment thought, more than it does the actual biblical picture. So whereas the spiritual strikes us as less substantial and more ephemeral, it should be the exact opposite. Spirit, it seems, is something stronger, more vital, and more glorious than the worldly elements of earthly soul and material flesh. Spirit can manifest in the material world and have very real material effects as we see in the angels who appear as men who sometimes are indistinguishable from human beings yet are clearly beyond this sphere. And in fact, Christ says in Luke 20 that we shall be like the angels in our resurrection, having some sort of similar bodily existence to them. So the material, or rather the spirit, has material effects, but it transcends the material world, and it's at home in a higher, more glorious reality. So our present form is not um, more real, but less real. This is the insubstantial place. This is the place of shadows and ghost-like figures. What is to come is more real, more concrete. Hence, listen to what the Apostle says in verse 50 and 51. Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, our current state, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's the bottom line. We're going to be changed. So as bodies, um, so our bodies, rather, as they are presently constituted as flesh and blood are not fit to abide in the heavenly kingdom, but only in the earthly sphere here below of decay and corruption. 
They must be changed, the apostle says, transformed at their foundational nature and made capable of partaking in something for which we have no analogy here below. So the bottom line is that Christ will provide us with a kind of body, a genuine material body, which is fitted for eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Now what that body is, the concrete spiritual substance that it's formed from, we have no idea. It might be the same kind of matter that we know now from science, but transformed so as to live on forever. It might be something else entirely, a a different type of matter altogether. Now, it's an incredible thought, right? One that seems hardly conceivable. But I think of Hamlet's words. He says, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Ultimately, I don't believe the resurrection because I can understand it, but because I believe that on the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And because he rose, I believe this body shall also rise. So, stored away in the depths of divine goodness and glory is a future mighty, enchanting, altogether in purged from corruption. Uh, purged, rather, from death and corruption and decay. One in which awaits nothing less than a share in the life that simply is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So with that, I'd like to end where we began with victory and with hope, which has very this-world consequences. Now, this extended discourse on the resurrection, which we treated rather briefly, is more, is rather mere information until it produces a new manner of existence in the here and now, right? It's, it's just facts. Until it changes our lives. Certain information is received, right? We take it in, we read the news, whatever, and we carry on as normal. But not the resurrection. It is information, but it's more than information. It is truth, power, and glory, and immortality. That is your future, and it must change your present. If that is what is to come, Truly, really, and not just a distant hope, not just well-wishing. If that is really real, it must change the way we live in the present. And it does. Listen to what the Apostle says now at the end. Therefore, my beloved brethren, if this is true, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Our hope, in other words, that we know the resurrection deep in our bones has an ordering and fortifying effect upon our lives. This hope, says the scripture, we have as an anchor for the soul. An anchor for the soul. 
Our hope is like a root tapped into rich soil which sustains us in times of drought. It's like a north star fixed in heaven that orders us through our uncertainty. It is a word of truth, reliable and honest, that calls us above the noise. And though our hope is those things, though it anchors us, though it directs us, though it saves us from despair and utter discouragement, it has to be realized. It has to be taken up and poured into our hearts and minds. You have to take it and believe it and use it in your life. So here is how the scriptures put the matter to those who have stumbled and forgotten their hope. Those who have been severely persecuted and are ready ultimately to walk away from Jesus Christ. Here's how the unknown author of Hebrews answers them. He says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We are urged to carry out our hope until the end. Not to be lazy, not to be sluggish, not to be indolent, but diligent. This hope, in other words, is not to be mere window dressing on an otherwise worldly life, but the very substance of our life. In fact, in one place, the scripture says that in hope, we are saved. In hope, we are saved. Our entire lives are supposed to be organized around and ordered to an end that we do not yet see. A horizon that is visible only to the eyes of faith. We are saved in hope. And now our earthly eyes, well, they see no reason for hope. If we're not exercising our faith and looking to that distant horizon, there is no reason for hope. We see instead only our accumulating sin. We see only our degenerating society. We see only the passing of those that we love. And in truth, when we're not exercising our faith, those seem real. Those seem like the dark star upon, around which our lives orbit. But the good news tells another story. We are saved in hope. As the great patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith, we are to see the promises perfect righteousness, resurrected bodies in a resurrected world on that distant horizon to welcome those promises and to be resolved to die in hope. Like Abraham, to whom God had promised that he would inherit the promised land, then what? He wandered. He died in hope. Like so many of the great people in that amazing chapter of Hebrews, they all died in hope without receiving the promises. We are saved in hope, not for this world, but for another. So why do you complain and grumble? Why do you despair? Why do you grow weary along the way? 
Is it not because you have forgotten to hope in the coming resurrection? Is it not because your eyes have been diverted from God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist to the seemingly desperate and hopeless situation around you? Is it not because you have failed to hope against hope? There's a story, um, no doubt fictional, about how Martin Luther's wife, Catherine, handled his ongoing pessimism and gloom. He had a lot to deal with Martin Luther, and it got him down from time to time. And so, over an extended period, um, she decided to dress in black, as if someone were dead. And when Luther came home from a trip and saw her, he said, Oh, who's dead? Why, she responded, Doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust. Then Luther burst into laughter and said, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I have been acting as if God were dead, and I will do so no more. Go and take off thy black. And the passage, our resurrection, encourages us the same. Take off thy black. And again, I don't mean to pour salt into anyone's open wound, but the truth remains. We do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Victory, the resurrected Christ, is the bottom line of our faith. There is ultimately no room for the kind of despair and hopelessness that is found out in the world. Though we, like all people, even more than others are subject to despair and to anxiety and to fear, we are not unlike other people because we have a living hope. Has Jesus Christ not risen from the dead? Has he not conquered death and hell forever? He has. So we have hope, but we need to realize that hope. We have to hope against hope and against the impossible, claim the impossible, that we shall rise into eternal life. So we must realize our hope in the here and now. And as we do, the apostle says, two things happen. We become steadfast and immovable. Now, as it pertains to our inner lives, that is, our emotions and our desires and our inclinations, we become steadfast. Hope, in other words, keeps us from going off course. It keeps us from turning aside to the right or to the left. Hope has an organizing power and an ordering power in our lives. When we have something to hope for, not merely wishful thinking, not merely pie in the sky, but something as sure as the ground that we walk upon, It uncurls and untangles our current haphazard existence. It straightens us out and it points us toward the thing hoped for. In this case, the resurrection. Without our hope anchored somewhere, rooted in something worth attaining, this present life dictates. The will is quickly turned aside in distraction. It's easily discouraged by even the smallest obstruction. Without hope, 
and the confident expectation that we shall attain it were aimless. We're battered around by the waves, tossed to and fro by the things that rise up within our hearts and minds. And without an aim, we're irresolute and we're vacillating. If we find ourselves constantly teetering, in and then out, and then out and then in, and then again and again and again, without any sort of stability about our discipleship to Christ, repeating that cycle throughout our lives, it's likely that we have forgotten our hope. We've forgotten that which is set before us. Because when we see that, it orders everything else. The will without it is splintered and frayed. And it's pulled between a thousand poles, some good and some not so good, because it lacks a fixed point at which to concentrate its powers. The resurrection from the dead, brothers and sisters, provides that point. And having provided it, it makes us steadfast, not here and there, not up and then down again, but resolutely committed to the one thing that matters the kingdom of God. Hope makes us steadfast. And as it pertains to our inward lives, or rather our outward lives, our circumstances, controlled and uncontrolled, we become immovable. Steadfast inwardly, immovable outwardly. Hope, it sounds strange to say, makes us heavy heavy with purpose and glory. The world throws its weight around, and though it can scratch and it can dent and it can chip away at our lives, it cannot ultimately move us. In hope, we are securely bolted down to the cornerstone, come what may. As the apostle says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are not, uh, he says, we are perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise also with Jesus. So we speak here in this immovability, not of thinner-than-air optimism, but weighty hope. Optimism, says one theologian, is often foolish and naive. A preference to see good where the evidence is undeniably bad. The resurrection is not optimism. He goes on, but hope is a very different creature. It is a choice. Hope is a choice. A self-imposed discipline to trust in God while judging ourselves and the world with unblinkered, unsentimental Clarity. Hope is a choice. James Stockdale, a prisoner of war in Vietnam, was asked sometime after he had been released and come home, what made the difference? What kind of people endured and what kind of people did not endure and why? And of those who did not endure, he said, the optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, we are going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they would say, we're going to be out by Easter. 
and Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And then they died of a broken heart. Hope is sturdier than optimism. Hope is sturdier than well-wishing, sturdier than pie in the sky. It sees things for what they are, unadorned and unembellished, and remains unmoved. It looks at its own life and remains unmoved. It looks at what's happening around it, remains unmoved. It looks at the horrible and horrific situation out in the world and in society, and it remains unmoved. As Abraham, whom the scripture says, in hope against hope, believed. In hope against hope. When there seemed no reason for hope, he hoped. He believed. So hope, what it does is it mounts up against and it overcomes the brute, desperate facts. Hope strengthens us to seemingly comfort or to seemingly confront the impossible, to endure when the only reasonable thing, thing seems to resign ourselves to defeat. Hope does not come without a determination to overcome obstacles in order to reach its desired destination. Hope is aggressive. Hope is strong. Hope does not lie down. It has, as the moral theologians say, an element, surprisingly, of anger to it. Hope has an element of anger to it, meaning it doesn't issue in mere positive thinking or even reckless self-confidence, but a calm and measured defiance in the face of death and the forces of darkness. Hope is defiant, and in hope we become steadfast and immovable. Now, as the time for communion has come, I'd invite you, brothers and sisters, to turn your heart toward that hope, which this meal represents. Christ bore our sins in his body. He was laid in the tomb, and he was raised the third day. And he gives us this meal, his body in blood now, not as a dead memorial, remembering the life of some great man who died on the cross, but as our living Lord Jesus Christ, the life-giving Spirit, who will return, the trumpet will sound, and these perishable bodies will rise imperishable. These dishonorable bodies will rise in glory, and these weak bodies will rise in power. So I encourage you now to eat and drink your hope.